Welcome to Sealy Talks. My name is Frida Greeley and I'm a program manager at the Sealy Institute based in Prague. In this second episode of this series, we continue to focus on the acceleration of digital justice in the courts and the challenges and benefits it presents to the judiciary in Central and Eastern Europe. In this episode, we are joined by David Anderson, Programme Director at the International Legal Foundation, who chronicles issues and shares his concerns for the administration of justice in remote proceedings. First, we met with Penelope Gibbs of Transform Justice, an organisation which she set up in 2012. She's a former magistrate and Penelope has worked to reduce child and youth imprisonment in the UK. This past February, Transform Justice launched a report entitled Not Remotely Fair. It explores the impact of the emergency response to COVID-19 on people interviewed in police custody. In particular, the impact on children and vulnerable adults. I started by asking Penelope, what were the key points of the report? What we found, and this was from the testimony of what are called appropriate adults, so these are volunteers who support teenagers and vulnerable adults in police custody who've been detained there, is that there were problems related to a phenomenon of COVID, which is that lawyers were nervous that there was not very safe and healthy in police custody. And basically, they said, we would like to give our advice to suspects in police custody remotely, either on the phone or on video. And they were allowed to do so for the most part. So there was a protocol which said that the police needed to get the consent of the suspect. But our research said that that asking for consent was not consistently done nor recorded and it indicated that a lot of suspects didn't actually know what they were consenting to. They didn't understand what difference it would make to them if they had a lawyer in person or on a phone. And then in terms of the phone and video advice, so that's before the police interview and during the police interview, there were technical problems about whether the suspect could actually hear their lawyer, but there were also relationship problems about suspects who basically were uncomfortable that their lawyer was far away and felt frustrated by that process. And what we are concerned about is that the actual behaviour of the suspect might be different because the lawyer wasn't with them. Previous work by Transform Justice also points to concerns for the quality of communication between a suspect and their lawyer. And in what is likely to already be a stressful situation for the defendant, communication concerns can be further exacerbated by distance which creates a lack of connection and in-person interaction normally shared between the defendant and their counsel. Often it's in circumstances where the suspect or the defendant is very, very stressed and they've never met the lawyer in their life before. 
So to create a relationship and for the lawyer to understand about their client, the circumstances uh, of the alleged defence, what the defence might be, and to give good advice, both about interview, but actually later on about whether uh, the suspect or defendant should plead guilty or not guilty, that is impeded if the relationship between lawyer and client has been entirely on video or on the phone. It's just a kind of human thing like you and I talking now. It's fine. We're both professionals. But where there's a this massive imbalance of power and where the stakes are so high and so important, you know, the research indicates it doesn't work very well for the client's mood, effective participation and also justice outcomes. Of particular concern to Penelope Gibbs is the carte blanche approach to digital justice. Despite its technical sophistication, Digital justice arrangements and remote hearings can be a crude instrument for those more vulnerable or less equipped to operate within a remote hearing. We think that there needs to be a judgment made by decision makers as to whether remote justice, you know, video justice is right in those particular circumstances for that person. So there's good evidence from the Equality and Human Rights Commission in England and Wales that those with certain disabilities, so autism or severe mental health problems or whatever, struggle even more than the ordinary person to communicate via video. And so What we would say is all people for whom video might be used need to be screened so that those with these disabilities can be, if possible, facilitated to come in person. Research from Transform Justice also highlights the need for judges to be more aware of the possible impact of remote hearings on defendants and to take extra measures to ensure that the defendant understands fully what's happening in the proceedings and their ramifications. Our research seems to indicate that defendants who are on video do one of two things. For the most part, they kind of tune out. So that's about they find it hard to understand what's going on or to pay attention, or they can get very frustrated because they can't communicate easily into this video court hearing. So from both points of view, I think the the judge and court staff need to be super aware of what the suspect or defendant is indicating, both in terms of what they say, but what they don't say. So this issue about understanding, I think judges might check understanding every now and then, or ask a question or something to check that the defendant actually is engaged in the court hearing and understands what's going on. Because to be honest, it's pretty difficult to understand what's going on in a court hearing when everybody's there in person. So to then be on a video link, which may or may not technically be very good, makes it that much more difficult. So I think it's important to check understanding, but also to open up possibilities for the 
defendant to actually give their point of view so that they don't get very frustrated. And equally, they need to be allowed to have a confidential word with their lawyer right in the middle of a court hearing if necessary. And I know that that's something, again, that the judge really needs to signal that that's fine, because otherwise the defendant and the lawyer will feel, oh, no, we've got to keep the wheels of justice moving, et cetera, et cetera. We can't interrupt this. But if they were there in court, the lawyer and the defendant in person, it's nearly always possible to have a short, maybe a a total break or just a whispered conversation. So somehow the judge needs to open that up and make it welcome. Witness testimony is also a concern for transformed justice. And while fear of undue influence can never be ruled out in a physical court where a judge and witness share the same space, remote hearings seem even more vulnerable. Penelope Gibbs raises her concerns for witness testimony given in less supervised environments where additional measures may need to be taken by the judge. I think there's always going to be a risk where these hearings are done from somebody's home. But what I think is important is that if at all possible would be to get somebody to go to that place, a member of court staff, so that it can be double checked. If that's not possible, I think it's important for the person to take their laptop or phone and, as it were, swivel around the room that they're in and be clear that the door is closed so that that issue of whether somebody else is in the room with them can be at least a bit checked. But ultimately, I think it's about watching the person on video incredibly carefully as well to see if they look uncomfortable and if they appear to be looking at something off screen. So There's obviously the risk that they could be looking at their mobile phone and they would be messages on their mobile phone which are trying to influence them. So I think it's look very hard at the body language of the person speaking. But even for defendants in police custody, Penelope Gibbs expresses a note of caution. While the presence of officers may infer a more authentic witness statement, the role of the lawyer and a system of checks and balances needs to be maintained. So in police custody, there are always guards. In prison, there are always guards. So the danger of undue influence in those circumstances, I think it's less than when you have a defendant or a witness who is taking part in a court hearing from outside the court, but in the community. So if the lawyer is involved, they should be helping everybody keep to standards. But equally, what I feel is that every country needs a very strong scrutiny mechanism so that the places where of detention are regularly inspected on a kind of snapshot basis so that you can't kind of prepare for it. So in a way, I think it's a kind of bigger issue about scrutiny mechanisms and inspection mechanisms, which need to be there to make this safe. Well, some interesting insights there from Transform Justice. And thank you, Penelope, for sharing those. Now, while Transform Justice findings are based on UK research, the work of the International Legal Foundation has a wider scope. 
And in his role as Director of Programmes, David Anderson is even more cautious about the role of digital justice. Recently, I met with David and continued in a similar vein of questions by asking him about the challenges raised by remote justice for individuals in detention and the role technology can play in undermining lawyer-client engagement and, as a result, the whole trial process. We know, obviously, that detainees who are accused of crime need to have confidential advice from their lawyer, and they also need to be able to pass information confidentially to the lawyer. If a person is to do that, they're going to need physical access most times to the lawyer in detention. And so that either means that the lawyer cannot appear directly in court, they must appear remotely as the detainee will, or it means that the lawyer needs to come up with a way to have confidential communication with the detainee, but also be present in court. So we've had an experience in Tunisia with remote justice where the detainee was required to appear remotely and we were not confident that the audio visual connection had been tested. So we were required to make a lawyer present in the prison to communicate directly with the client and in the court to make sure that the client and the lawyer were coming through clearly uh, on the judge's side. Both lawyers had a full-time job. The lawyer in the prison needed to explain how the proceedings would go to the client, receive confidential information, and communicate to the lawyer in court. The lawyer in court needed to make sure that the proceedings were happening equitably, that anybody who appeared in the courtroom to support the detainee was heard appropriately by the judge, and needed to make sure that the video recording and the audio quality were sufficient such that the detainee and the lawyer could be heard by the judge. But lawyer-client engagement relies on a free flow of communication, which is often hindered by the operational limitations in the majority of detention centres. First of all, many prisons don't want to allow detainees to have a communications device. Second, the prison officials control the, the room. So it's very difficult to make sure, even if a person thinks they're not being eavesdropped on or listened to, it's difficult to make sure that they feel comfortable communicating candidly with their lawyer. Not only may access to counsel be more limited, but the impact of confinement on an individual's well-being can have a corrosive effect, impacting their demeanour and their ability to operate. Concerns that may be less easily detected by the judge in a remote hearing environment. We know people in detention are at risk of active mistreatment by authorities, for example, physical abuse, but they're also at risk of having their mental health deteriorate due to conditions of confinement. And when a person appears physically in court, it's much easier for a judge to assess their demeanor and their psychological state. And if a person is, is being abused, physically, or if they have some observable consequence, either of a physical or psychological distress, the judge is able to control the courtroom and determine whether further examination is necessary. Actions are safeguards by the judge that are less feasible in a remote hearing. Even if the judge has great control over the area of the prison or the detention facility where a detainee appears from, at the end of the day and final analysis, the prison controls that end of the link. 
And even if it is obvious that a person has not been physically abused or is in psychological distress, you have prison guards standing behind the camera making sure it's aimed at the detainee, which from a, the perspective of the accused is a very different feel from being in court where often the only armed or security personnel are the ones securing the courtroom. So when we talk about an inability to examine the detainee, I'm thinking that from our perspective, this is a huge outcomes problem because often we are unable to marshal evidence for the outcome that we think is, is just because we have a lack of an ability for the judge to examine the situation and apply the remedy. These concerns and observations are corroborated by research where results from TV courts proceedings confirm the fears of David Anderson. Lessons which should be taken into account in the design and operation of remote hearings. But also bookending our lived experience in this domain, there is a US study from the city of Chicago where they implemented remote hearings determining release or detention for detainees in a pretrial posture. And they found that when they started having release hearings over television, the rate of release dropped drastically and the conditions on release were much more draconian. So even if judges are aware that remote appearance is an attenuated hearing, it's not truly an in-person hearing, we find that outcomes tend to show that people are detained more often or that further restrictions are placed on liberty as compared to in-person hearings. Another thing to be aware of, I think, in designing a remote appearance. And when it comes to why outcomes in a remote hearing could be less favourable to the defendant, here David is in unison with Penelope and cites a disconnection between the defendant and the proceedings. Where they appeared remotely, reported that they had a feeling of disconnection from the court proceeding. And many accused did not know exactly why they were appearing by video or that they were in a court proceeding in which their liberty was at stake. The remote appearance gives people less of a sense that a serious decision is being made or that liberty is at stake in quite the way that it is when a person walks through the grand doors of the courtroom and has to stand before the judge. But what was striking about the research that was done is that people seemed to be very confused and very disconnected and to not have really the slightest idea of what was happening to them until afterwards when they found out that they had received a sentence that impacted their liberty. And so I think that's the big thing to be aware of is that perception outcomes are affected in a way by remote hearings, which is perhaps of another magnitude than with other changes to the justice system. Of equal concern is the right to the presumption of innocence in a remote hearing, a right that seems to be even more precarious for defendants in detention and which prompts David to suggest a further note of caution. Hopefully, some mitigation can be made for the fact that everyone in the courtroom is aware that a person is appearing from a prison or a detention facility. It seems to me as though that fact cannot be fully deleted from the minds of the fact finders. We have in various jurisdictions rules where people cannot appear in prison uniforms or where they need to be presented to the fact finder as though they are a person of normal means coming off the streets so that there isn't some prejudgment of guilt based on somebody walking in in, in stripes 
you know, how can we do that when we have a prison guard turning on the Zoom link and saying, okay, here's the detainee, they're ready. I could say that it would help if we didn't put people in prison uniforms or if we took the shackles off them before they appeared on video. But I think that that hides the fact that this is a video link to the prison and that that can't be effaced in the proceeding. There has to be some active effort on behalf of the judge to offset the fact that a person is clearly appearing from detention. Well, on that note, thanks to David Anderson of the International Legal Foundation and thanks again to our earlier contributor, Penelope Gibbs of Transform Justice. Interesting observations and both expressing similar concerns for the integrity of justice and maintaining it in remote hearings. Coming up in our next podcast, we will be joined by Professor Linda Mulcahy of Oxford University and Yerji Novak, Czech member of the Council of Bars and Law Societies of Europe, as well as its chair of the IT Law Committee. They will discuss the digitalization of justice in remote hearings, particularly the role of judges in remote hearings and techniques used to create the process of a physical hearing. Don't forget to log on to our website at celiainstitute.org for background information on the speakers and content for all of these episodes. Till next time, this is Seely Talks. I'm Frida Greeley and thank you for listening. Thank you.